the Ramchal introduces as the foundation and the root of creating a solid structure to our spiritual welfare, to our spiritual beings. In other words, we, we have to be very careful about painting over ourselves a veneer of Jewish connection. And essentially the bedrock of who we are remains untouched. The ultimate process of growth within Torah is to touch the deeper parts of our being and to, to integrate, to bring those to the, to the party. Um, as we discussed last time, that there's an idea whereby we, we have to... We, we suggested that there's different levels of who we are and as much as there are different levels of who we are there's also different levels of pleasure and the, the Ramchal suggests that the singular purpose of creation was for us to de- derive the pleasure and the ultimate pleasure is a pleasure which is completely transcendent it transcends every aspect of um, possessions, body, persona, even thoughts. There's, a, there's a, a state of being whereby a person is able to connect to a part of himself which is ineffable. You can't, you can't, you can't even think about it. You can't speak about it. It is. It's beyond language. It simply is. And when a person reaches that sense of connection, so then a person starts to um, experience the internal origin of his self and from that point everything else should flow meaning from the point of a recognition of soul so a person should think, should speak, should act and should possess and then when a person moves from the inward outwards so then every aspect of his being becomes a manifestation, expression of that as opposed to an isolated disconnected form of identity. Now, maybe that was all too convoluted. So I'm going to try just give another couple of examples. Um, I'll give you an example of something which is I think very typifying of Judaism and I think it differentiates Judaism from from other religions there was a major leader in German Jewry Orthodox German Jewry in the 1800s a man who is known as Rabbi Shimson Rufel Hirsch and at one point in his career, he tried to implement, in the end he didn't go through with it, that Orthodox Jews would close down all their synagogues. He wanted to make sure that no Jew, Jews went to shul. He's, he's a rabbi. That sounds like a very strange thing for a rabbi to do. I mean, are Jews all about going to shul? His rationale was as follows. With the advent at that time of the reform movement, the seat of Jewish expression was looked upon as the, the temple or the shul, the, the synagogue. 
and it relocated the essential expression of Jewish worship to a place of worship. Said Rabbi Hirsch, that's antithetical to Judaism. Judaism doesn't have a place of worship because Judaism is not a religion in the classic sense of the word. Judaism is a, is a state of being. It's a way of doing. It's a way of, it's a way of everything. So you could have a perfectly active Judaism with no synagogues. Judaism expresses itself in the home, in the way you eat, in the way you talk, in the way you look, in the way you think. In other words, the idea of expression of self is not located only in an isolated worshipping environment. In other words, every last ounce of our being, whether it be our possessions or our body or our emotions or our words or our thoughts, are integrated into this new state of being. How so? So the Ramchal goes on to say that there's two worlds. There's two worlds. There's the world called this world and there's a world which is called the world that comes. To illustrate with a famous story that gives us perspective. Once one of the rabbis of Lubavitch was imprisoned and he was in this dark cell and he heard the footsteps of the jailer approaching the small room with iron bars that he was imprisoned in it was dark in the prison very little lighting and the clank of the keychain of the jailer and his footsteps became louder as he approached his cell door he thrust the key into it turned it and flung the door open in his hand the jailer was carrying a crude metal plate with some gruel he looked at the rabbi and he said Jew, here's your food, eat and the rabbi (coughs) replied calmly his clear eyes looking directly into those of the jailer. I'm sorry, I'm not going to eat the food because I'm not sure if it's kosher. The jailer said, I said, eat. wasn't asking for your opinion. The Rebbe said, I do not eat food which is not kosher. Tranquil and calm. The jailer becomes infuriated. The veins stand out in his temple, his face gets red, and he takes his hand and pulls it on his holster and takes out his gun. He cocks it and he pushes the, pushes the gun against the Rebbe's temple, the cold steel pushing into him. And he says, Jew, eat this food or I'll pull the trigger and you'll be dead. The Rebbe completely collected, feeling the barrel against his forehead, replied and said, Guns? Guns? 
guns are only frightening for people who have many masters in one world. I have one master and two worlds. Guns don't scare me. So I'm gathering that you never pull the trigger <laughs> because the story is being told. But that's a completely different perspective about the nature of life. Uh, the nature of life in terms of, first of all, what we're here for, but in terms of how we relate to moment-by-moment moment existence, is it's not that there's this notion of you live here and then you stop living here and then afterwards there's this thing called the world to come. The world to come is a description of the kind of life that we have in the here and now. Our life can either be transcendent or finite, limited. Our actions can either be eternal or temporary. Any action which serves the pure purpose of physical functionality is for the here and now and becomes locked in space and time. I eat because I'm hungry. I sleep because I'm tired. I train and get a job in order that I should be able to make enough money to provide food so that I can eat and a house so that I can sleep. That kind of existence becomes locked into a temporary and finite state of being. There's nothing beyond. There's nothing transcendent. And ultimately there's nothing meaningful other than just keeping up that same I work to eat, I eat to work, I work to sleep, I sleep to work process. Then there's something which is called meaning. What meaning does is it takes those moments and it liberates them from the dreary monotony of day-to-day life and put them on a plane whereby there's no longer I eat because I'm hungry. Rather, through the act of eating, I'm able to gain insight into a different dimension of creation. In Judaism, one of the ways that we access this transcended form of eating is through a brocha. A brocha is a small meditation that you recite before you indulge in any pleasure of the world. But it completely transforms the act. No longer does it remain an act of eating, it becomes an act whereby I use the process of eating as a handle on a deeper experience of a spiritual truth. What I mean? Imagine you have an apple in front of you. You look at the apple. And if you eat an apple, what happens in the process of eating an apple? You experience some sensation of taste upon your tongue, you chew it, your, your body has, gets certain nutrients, and your digestive system digests them and you feel a certain sense, depending on how hungry you are, satiation or not. That's it. The apple came, the apple went, and it's gone. Because there's nothing eternal about eating an apple. But now what happens is you take an apple and you make a brocha on the apple. What does it mean? It means as follows. You take this fruit and you look at it as if you've never ever seen 
a fruit in your life before. You've got a green apple in front of you and you look at the skin and gingerly you touch it and you start to appreciate the magnificence of the skin. First of all, the color is so appealing. It shines. It has a certain translucency to it. Not only that, it has a fragrance. Functionally, it keeps the flesh of the fruit crisp and sweet. The shape feeding around the outside of the apple is so satisfying. The roundness, the rotundity. And you play around with this apple until you become completely engaged in, wow, this could be put on display. Just from a purely aesthetic perspective, the range of colors and the subtle shift in shades and the variety of different colors. This is magnificent. And then you, you feel the, Christmas, the crispness of the external outside of the apple. You smell the fragrance and then you stop. And you say to yourself, well, where did this apple come from? I mean, how did it get into my hands? Let's kind of trace the, the, the history of the apple. So you think back and you say, well, once upon a time, there was a piece of ground and someone or something took a small seed of an apple and put it into the soil. And as the seed decomposed, it started to germinate. Until eventually, sucking in the nutrients from the soil, it managed to pierce the surface of the soil and it became a small sapling. And through a miracle of incredible scientific genius, photosynthesis, was able to take the energy from the sun like some type of super advanced solar panel and generate in combination with the nutrients in the soil and the water further growth and from this tiny little seed a tree started to develop and get bigger and bigger and it spread forth in branches and more leaves and eventually flowers blossoms and you'd come in the spring and you'd see this apple orchard with this beautiful trees and you think oh my gosh with these trees only for their beauty and you say no actually what happens is the flowers will fall off and where the flowers once were tiny little apples will be and then they'll grow and they'll grow and they'll grow and when the coordination between the point that you find it the most delicious to eat them when they reach their height of sweetness that's when they'll just drop off the tree so you don't even have to bother to pick them and you'll take that apple off the ground and hold it in your hand and with the realization of all of this and the ingenuity and the complexity and the essential miraculous being of this apple you think to yourself you relate it to a higher source that this doesn't often happen through a series of accidents this is designed this is perfectly timed and this is 
designated for me right now. And all that ingenuity and all that brilliance and all that care which evolved into this apple were designed by the hands of the Creator so that I could presently engage in the experience I'm about to have. So I get that consciousness of the Baruch the source of all abundance in the world, which is Baruch Atah Yu Hashem. In other words, source of all abundance, the notion of a Bracha means that something starts off, Bracha is made up of three letters, Bet, Resh, and Chaf. Each one is a multiple of two. Bet, two. Resh, 200. And Chaf, 20. Because each one describes the notion of abundance. Abundance is the movement from singularity to plurality. Abundance is when the principle becomes manifest in the particularities. The idea of Hashem kind is not experienced until I can hold an apple in my hand. And then I can feel the power of the kindness of Hashem by grasping onto this miraculous fruit and say, Baruch and acknowledge it. And then I say, Hashem, the tetragrammaton, which means was, is, and will be the eternal being of Hashem, Melech HaOlam, the king of a world which is there to simultaneously, as I'm seeing right now, reveal, but hide his presence. Just like clothing. You know, when you put on clothing, so then it hides your body, but you can see underneath the clothing the form of your body. It reveals and it hides. So, Melech HaOlam, the king of the hidden world, Bore, you, you created, you create, Bore, present tense, creates the fruit of the tree and with that cognizance and with that consciousness I take a bite and when I take a bite the sweetness of the taste upon my tongue and the appreciation that my tongue has got the capacity to appreciate that and the fact that this apple is not only beautiful incredibly designed miraculously found itself into my hand but also satisfies me from a taste perspective and a nutritional perspective the act of eating an apple becomes completely transcendent and it doesn't stop when the apple is finished because I touched onto something which is eternal and living life in that way transforms the mundane into the eternal that's called living in a world where you have one master Everything comes from a single source and it's there to be accessible so that your spirituality can be manifest in not in the shul alone. It doesn't have to be in worship. It can be in the way you walk down the road. And in fact, when you ponder on the entire regimen of the morning um, exercises that we have to perform, you see that they build this consciousness of incredible appreciation of the deeper dimension to ourselves. Jacob Petita, you wanted to ask. Just following a train of thought which I have is God a being of gratitude? Say again? Is God a being of gratitude? Does he say thank you to us? Hashem say thank you to us? Does he express gratitude to us? It's a very good question. You're asking a question in, in terms of, just to give you a brief intro, and I'll explain what I'm saying. There are what's called the seven, the ten spheres, which are the seven middas. 
the ten attributes of Hashem or the ten spheres, divine emanations. The seven divided up into two parts, three and seven. Of those seven, there's a attribute which is known as Hod, which means sometimes glory, sometimes thankfulness, which indicates that Hashem, as it were, crazy as it may sound, needs to thank us. End to be explored. So the answer is yes, but that needs huge explanation. Good. Okay. Um, back to where we are. We're trying to live a transcendent life. A transcendent life means that we live this world eternally. Not that we live this world and then we get an eternal world. We live this world with eternity. What does eternity mean? It means that eating an apple becomes an eternal experience. It doesn't become a event that occurred and went into the past, disappeared into nowhere. And that's true of anything we do that, cre- that connects us to a higher source. When we respond to the lower side of selves, our, body, our animal body, so then we become locked into time. When we respond to our spiritual self, we become freed from time. Another example. The way the morning service is designed is that a person wakes up and he becomes completely aware of his body. And one of the first brochures you make is called Pokech Ivrim. Opens up the eyes of the blind. Now, again, we take looking around and the ability to see it, we take it completely for granted. The fact that we can differentiate between colors, that our vision focuses automatically, it's way, 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 extremely more advanced than any camera. There's like no focusing time. And you can go back and forth, wide angle, zoom in, zoom out. We, I think we can see, I've forgotten, I just read in the book, how many millions of colors that we can see, that I can differentiate between. Theoretically speaking, you know, you could have a very low, you could only be able to see two or three colors or, or no colors. But in terms of the shades of colors, we can see millions of different shades. Now the whole process, the way the eye works, is beyond description. The way that the light enters into the eye and it's refracted onto the back of the retina and then it's switched around in the brain. It's a, but the fact that we can see, just appreciate the fact of sight. Sight means you can see the people that are closest to you. You can walk around a new city that you've never been to before and you can appreciate the architecture. It means that you can drive a car. It means that you can read text in a book or you can look at a computer. And sight is awesome. Now, if someone came to you and they said, well, how much would you pay if you could... You know, there's a person that needs, theoretically speaking, he needs a retina. He needs two retinas. So, can we just take them out of yours? We'll pay you for it. We'll pay you for it. How much would you guys charge to lose your sight? Some will pay you for your, your eyes. How much would you be willing to take? A million? A million pounds. Two million pounds. Three million pounds. Ten million pounds. A billion pounds. 
not a billion pounds. Sure, you could do the billion pounds. Could help a lot of people. Could help a lot of people. <laughs> billion pounds. Well, it's designed to be. Like, you don't but see it like that point of view. You'd want to obviously. You would want to see, right? So that means I've just given you a billion pounds. How does it feel to be walking around with a billion pounds in your pocket? Well, isn't it amazing? Right? You, you realize that, the, the, that just, just seeing is priceless. It's priceless. So now, step number one is to come into contact with, come into appreciation of what that means. It's all locked into that brocha. And then you have to source it. You have to source it, right? But even Hendrick can see too. And so like, relatively speaking, uh, I mean, if you all have a billion pounds, no one has a billion pounds. And even like the wicked can see and they can do bad things with their eyesight, like Hitler did. So, like, there's a grant that, yes, they can do beautiful things with your eyesight, and you can, you know, do so much. But if, uh, in, the same, in the same way, evil can be done, evil has been done with their eyes. Absolutely. Words, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that eyes are morally good or morally bad. I'm saying that the capacity, the way I experience it as a human being, the capacity for sight, for me, is a huge, huge gift. That's step number one. There's steps numbers two, three, four, and five. But step number one is to acknowledge the gift. Before you acknowledge the gift, then you can't go on to the further steps. Now, once you've acknowledged the gift, that I don't take my sight for granted anymore. I appreciate it. So first of all, that shifts my emotional sense. I'm now much happier. Because when I become aware of that, I now realize I have a gift. And whenever we get a present, we get happy. Presents make us happy. So, if you have a gift of sight and you walk around with it, so that's really exciting. Before we go into the, all the other gifts that you carry around with you, let's just focus on sight. Step number one is gift. Now, the next thing when you have a gift, someone gives you a gift, it's only right to say thank you. And the bigger the gift, the greater your debt of gratitude. So, the next stage is someone's just giving you a billion pounds. Bitton, you should say thank you. And then you should say to yourself, do you know what? Why did he give me that present? Well, people only give you presents when they care about you. And they want to express their love. So now it comes from acknowledgement to gratitude. Gratitude then shows a source that you thank Hashem for the capacity to see. And then that brings to closeness of a loving relationship because you feel that he wanted me to have this gift. So that's a caring. Now, then that leads to another thing. That well, if someone gives you a gift, someone gives you a, a brand new fountain pen. Beautiful. Mont Blanc. Beautiful fountain pen. Gold with diamond encrusted. What would be the best thing for you to reciprocate? Take the pen and you write him a note. With that pen. You say, thank you for the pen. Because he gave it to you to use. So what's the, what's the best thing you can do with your eyes once you've acknowledged and you've developed this relationship is use them for the, for the good. Use them for the good. So in other words, this whole process of just acknowledgement, appreciation, connection, and then direction. Direction. So when you look at things, you look at things differently. You look at people in a positive fashion. The Baal Shem Tov says that we're given two eyes. One eye extremely strong and one eye extremely weak. 
and this extremely strong eye can pick up any detail in any fault. It's amazing. And the weak eye just overlooks everything. It just picks up like genuine qualities. And he says, naturally, we use the very strong eye to look at everyone else around us and the very weak eye to look at ourselves. And the purpose of life is to switch the role of the eyes. That's on a more metaphorical basis about what looking, how looking, how looking works. But on a simple basis, the gift of sight. So you see, this is the direction that we have to try to tread. And when you do this, so then the physical world itself becomes a, a catalyst for spiritual connection. And then we start to live in the present, an eternal present as opposed to living in the limitations of space and time. Because the minute we free the moment, the gift, from just being within the physical constructs, we fly. Laser, we fly. We take off. It's good. Yes, Avi? Is it that we fly or we, do, we follow the flow? Is it we fly or we glide with, with the wind wherever it is? Or like a kite. A kite doesn't fly on its own. A kite has, is, is shifted by the wind. So in that right. sense, would the, the ruach, literally, of, of God just be guiding us and we just follow that? Do we have any, you know, do we have sure. any say? Okay, let's make a compromise. Hang glider. Hang glider. Hang glider. You mean you need the wind, but you have to direct others who crash. <coughs> you're on the wind, you're sailing in the sky. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for your, for your rapt attention and uh, look forward to tomorrow. Thank you.